Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jerry Petito Show. Guys, have I got an incredible legend here to introduce to you all today. Lee Shapiro, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. How are you, Lee? I'm great. How are you doing, Jerry? I'm doing great. You know, um, let's give a quick shout out to our friend Dominic Paradise, who absolutely loves you. He was the one who connected us. Very kind man, very talented man. Yes. And he does his, uh, you know, incredible, incredible um, tribute to yeah, your no, music. And he's just a good-hearted guy. Yes, he is. If you ever see his name, Dominic Paradise, definitely go see him. Have a meatball while you're there. <laughs> That's great. So, Lee, you have an incredible biography. You know, let's start, let's go back a little bit. Let's start in 1973 when you were 19 years old. And you joined Frankie Valley um, as one of the singers for Four Seasons. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I was in school of music, studying classical piano and composition and orchestration. And on the Monday nights, I was well, I was writing arrangements on the weekend because on Monday we had a big band, you know, like Buddy Rich, like fifteen horns, all of it. Any case, it turns out that. Every time the Four Seasons, unbeknownst to me, had to come, had to do wanted to do a new song, they had to come back to New York for Charlie Colello, who remains a dear friend, my mentor, to do the arranging. So Gordio was leaving because he didn't want to travel anymore. They didn't want to have to come back to New York. So they were looking for someone who would play keyboards and be able to arrange and be able to sing and be one of the Four Seasons. And... Richard Natoli was the road manager at the time, and he came in and saw me conducting and orchestrating for this big band jazz thing. And the next day, the, the recently late Long, rest in peace, called me and asked me if I wanted to come in audition, and I did. And Frankie walked in, and he asked me to play a song. He put in, it was Dawn, and I played it, the first chord, and he sang, Pretty as a Midsummer. And I stopped playing. And he said, what's the matter? I said, man, you like the radio. So everybody had a good laugh at my expense. I don't think I was shaving every day yet. <laughs> and and uh, they gave me the gig. So what's really cool is that you didn't just sing. You did everything. You did so much more. Well, I was very, very blessed to be giving, to given that kind of an opportunity to do what I had loved to do and what I was aspiring to do, you know what I'm saying? Because it's really, it was a very, it was a very good opportunity. It wasn't, it wasn't a lucrative position originally because as Jersey Boys reveals, right when I joined, the band was $4 million in debt and Frankie was working it off himself with and It was really quite something that they worked themselves out of a hole, but fortunately it was my entree into the band. As a result, my career unfolded that's really cool you know i've heard stuff like that before interviewing all these legends about the financial part of it none of us fans ever thought that you know we wouldn't know any of that we just thought oh wow they're super famous super rich everything's grand well that's the image yes that needs to be projected from a show business standpoint otherwise why should people pay to see you yeah, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't well, think that way, but I guess. I Well, I agree. I understand why you wouldn't, but the truth of the matter is that no one ever saw Elvis 
once a concert was over, you never saw him again. You never saw him in the street. Never saw him. As a result, the mystery and the mystique that surround the same with Michael Jackson, unless there were right. toys, unless there was a Toys R Us sighting. But other than that, and the same thing with—I mean, you could run into Frankie Valley over at a, in LA at a, at, a, at a flea market or some strange, odd place that he wouldn't be recognized just to be there. But the truth of the matter is, is that people want to be entertained, and they don't want the people on stage. To not, in other words, they want to. What happens is that, at least for us, it's 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 a trip back in time, and you relive your youth, and be, you become that age for the hour and a half that you're there, and that's that's really what it's all about. For it was for the secret, it is for the hitman, and uh, you know, I still speak to Frankie to this day, and his philosophy about how to perform comes firsthand from him to me, and believe me, it's 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 the Bible. Wow. That was beautifully said. Thanks for sharing that because that's what we want to hear. You know, Frankie, the, the truth. Yeah, I'll give you the behind the scenes a little bit. Some sure. of the secret to performing per Frankie Valley, who said to me, like, if you're ever singing a ballad, find someone in the audience, you know, a, a lady, it doesn't matter what they look like or how, age, how old they are. So if you're a man, whatever your preferences are, but back then, find a lady. Right. He says, and sing it directly to her. He says, all the people around her will assume you're looking in their direction, but that lady will know and she'll tell the entire world that you sang to her. So that was one nice little thing that he, to bring an audience into you. Another one is, if someone's doing something on stage, everyone else needs to look interested, otherwise no one will care. I mean, these are things that aren't taught anywhere. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? So sometimes you'll go see a band and someone will be taking a solo and the guy on keyboard is walking off, having a drink of water, coming back on. Well, how much am I supposed to care? Right. <laughs> you know? So also today with the multimedia so available uh, that wasn't available back in the day, I mean, literally videos that are played broadcast quality concerts are made on people's laptops in their kitchen, you know, so the show, the spectacle of it has become really expected in a way, you, you don't want to go, people don't want to just go see it unless it's, you know, if you go to see Clapton it's another story, you go to see an entertaining music the visuals does a lot for it and it's all about the entertainment experience is what what people are looking for, they want to feel removed from their normal regular life and into fantasy land. Just like just like Willy Wonka when you open the door and you're there, you know. I mean that's that's what the, it's about. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. You know, you've done so much though. I mean, okay, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit more about the four seasons of course. Um but then I want to talk about what went on with you in nineteen ninety, you know, Lee Shapiro music as well. But as far as the Four Seasons go, what's your, I don't want to say what's your best, fondest memory, but you've, you have to have a few that really stick out. Would you like to share them with us? Certainly. You know, to find myself, some, some are very, you know, poignant and, and, and meaningful, and some of them are absolutely silly and stupid, which, and both are equally valuable to me. I'll give you two. One is I find myself at age 23 
standing on the stage in the London Palladium on the circle that's cut out of wood where Louis the Fifteenth stood. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> From Glenrock, New Jersey. Is it the London Palladium? <laughs> I mean, you gotta be kidding. So that that's one that sticks out big time. But at the same time, or at that very performance, they played a joke on me, which is still retold to this day by John Piva and I. And John Piva, as you might remember, but I certainly do, was a fat guy. I can say it because I so okay. was a fat And I was not because I was a young 23-year-old kid with a 32-inch waist. And what they did was we were dressing downstairs in the London Palladium and we're about to go on stage with a stage full of strings and horns and just unbelievable spectacle. And they took my pants off of my hanger and they put John's pants on my hanger and John took off with my pants. So I came back to him unsuspected. I put the jacket on pretty good. I go for the pants. I put them on. They're John's pants. But I don't know. I'm panicking because the pants are three sizes bigger than I am. And I'm saying, where's John? He's got my pants on as though that were possible. So <laughs> anyway. I was. I always. I was always the butt of the joke, but in retrospect, it was. It was really flattering. So that's very cool. You know, um, I've never gotten an interview Frankie, of course, but I did get to interview Bobby. A shout out to his brother, Bobby Valley. I love him. I got to meet him. Um, amazing family, and what you guys have done for the world with your music. I mean, I don't even have to tell you, especially the last couple of years. Okay with all, all the musicians, okay? They were more essential than ever. So I want to thank you for that. Well, that's my pleasure, and that's what we do. Yes, yeah. beautiful. So talk, let's talk about what happened in uh, when you collaborated with all the songwriters. But then, in 1990, you formed Lee Shapiro Music, right? I formed a company to do music for the media. Uh, I was I was doing it anyway in, out of someone else's facility, but I felt that I had established myself not only with the ad people, but also with certain celebrities that I worked with making demos or whatever. So I opened up my own studio. Okay, so tell us about that. Well, I opened it up and I didn't know what I was going to do. There was big expenses and I had no clients, but I just believed in it. And this is a true story. My wife is around here somewhere. But we went out to dinner, 1989 or 90, and my daughter at the time was about seven, and we came back and the babysitter was his wife most. So what's the matter? What's my? She goes, ask your daughter. So my just to backtrack, my wife had had a dream about Barry Manilow because I had worked with him once in the old play. And she said, why don't you call Barry? I said, I can't call Barry Manilow. I'm ridiculous. He said, write a letter. I said, I'll write a letter to his manager and just tell him I'm on my own now. So anyway, we forget about it. Months go by. We go out to dinner. We come home. The babysitter says, ask your daughter who called. I said, Ariel, did Daddy get a call tonight? She goes, yes. I said, was it? She said, it was Barry Man. <laughs> so I called him back. And he said, Lee, uh, we want to fly you away and have a meeting about doing the music, music with me to the show, Copacabana. And I worked with Barry for three and a half months on that in my studio. And he is without a doubt the most, a gentleman 
and the most gifted, one of the gift, most gifted performers I've ever worked with. He can do everybody's job. He can produce, he can write, obviously, he can sing, obviously. He's, you know, the, you can play the piano, but then you can be an accompanist. It's a different thing. And he's, in other words, being an accompanist is knowing what not to play. And he's a master. He, he plays He plays to accompany his vocal perfectly. And he also can orchestrate, he can orchestrate, he can do anything. And yet, smart enough to be able to do a production and stand back and let other people do it so he can be the objective ears. And I've never been more impressed with a guy with that kind of celebrity to have that kind of background and foundation knowledge and just raw talent. Amazing. That's beautiful. The Copacabana, baby. At the Copa. <laughs> Her name was Jerry. Oh, my gosh. So... When you think back to everything you've done, right? I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of sad times, happy times, all that, you know? But you had to have met so many people. Was there anyone in particular other than the people you've mentioned already that just blew your mind when you met them? You know what? Honestly, so many people from so many different walks of life that if I say one, uh, and I will, but from the world of just celebrity and entertaining I spent two weeks with, with Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> thought I was going to die I thought I was going to die Rare, a rarity all of the four seasons in the seven all four of us five of us no Frankie didn't but all four of us were very good musicians and sight readers so basically the orchestra these are the days when Rodney was opening for just before Caddyshack, and we're playing Vegas at the Oladdo. And Rodney opens for us, but they say, ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Dangerfield and the orchestra, the house orchestra, they play. Now they have to wait for a full 45 minutes to play him off with four bars, and they can't go home. So I come out as the musical director, and I say to the guys, look, everybody go home. Give me the arrangements. The four of us play them off. And I said, are you sure? I said, don't worry. We all read. We all we all did this before we had the, you know, the synthetic fiber suits on. We, <laughs> we really did this. So I said, okay. And every night we snuck out behind the, the, the thing and said, good night, everybody. And we were, the Four Seasons were playing at the Dangerfield off stage and no one ever knew it. But we were out there for his old show and we were wetting ourselves every night, the same jokes, two weeks in a row. We, you, you couldn't you, we were crying on the 23rd time you were still crying that's great unbelievable so he was wonderful but then on another front I mean just all left field stuff I met Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and then I met uh, oh my god I mean um, Sarah Vaughn Johnny Mathis wow I, I, and I can go, I can go Wolfman, Jack, oh. uh, Casey in the Sunshine Band, Don, Donna Summer, uh, Marvin Hamlish. Uh, it just, it, I mean, I can keep picking them from everywhere, you know what I mean? Governor Brendan Byrne back in the day in the 70s. It, it just, just, it was ridiculous. It was a portal to something that you can't picture unless you're doing it. Okay, so, okay. Did you ever meet Elvis? No, but I was in, I was down. I was a kid, but I was in town with Frankie at the Flamingo Hotel in the lounge when Frankie and I had joined him at a very low point, as is the big Jersey boys. 
And we played in the lounge opposite Fats, you know, we played 57 shows one month, sometimes four a night. And in town, at the Hilton, in what now is the Barry Manilow room, was the Elvis Presley room. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I never got over there to see him, but the town filled up. Every hotel was thrilled when Elvis was in town, because the entire town filled up. And you know what Elvis's deal was? Was he got 10% of the gross revenues of the Hilton Hotel in Vegas when he was there. Wow. <laughs> everything. The restaurant, the bar, the gambling. <laughs> you know, that was his deal. And, you know, it just, I'm, I'm, it's old Vegas, though. I got, I got, I saw Vegas at the very end of the Rat Pack days. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very cool. So, you know, I still have the Elvis ticket. I never made it to the concert. I was only 16 and a half and he passed away. And it's in my Elvis poker room. I have an Elvis poker table. But I was interviewed by George Klein at Graceland. And I also got to interview Elvis's nurse, Marion. Um, and I was supposed to meet Priscilla through COVID. I hope that still happens. So here we are. Did Beautiful. they give you a value on the ticket? Did they know? I'm sorry, sweetie? Did they give you a value on the ticket? Oh, I. you know what? I never asked for one. It's framed. I don't care if they offer me a million. I'm not give, I'm not taking it. It's staying. Okay. It's Wait. listen to me. It's staying where it's at. Okay. <laughs> if I show, if I show up with cash, listen, room. I'm gonna have to say I love you for that. It's staying <laughs> in the frame. Um, you know. Oh, and uh, there's a gentleman out there, Elvis Aaron Presley Jr., who yes. not only did I get to interview him, I'm hoping to meet him one day, and I did get court documents stating he owns the rights to his father's name. Well. And and yes. I think that's very impressive, but I would certainly get that certified before I would do anything. Well, um, it's all been taken care of, yes. Beautiful. So, that, yes. Not, not a matter of trust on any right. level. No. Just to be runs, you know, due diligence. Yes, to... yes, I did it all, and it was amazing. You know, um, I have one more question for you about people you met and didn't meet, because this is important as well. Was there anyone in your entire career that you would have loved to have met but didn't get the opportunity to, other than Elvis, but, you know, someone else? Well, I mean, I can go back in history and, you know, say anybody, but as far as on a musical level, yes. I actually did meet the man and shook his hand. The only problem was I was 11 and didn't know who I was meeting really, oh. and it was at the rehearsal of the Young People's Concert with Leonard Bernstein. Okay, <laughs> very cool. So it might have been nice to meet him, like, yes. say, now-ish. <laughs> no, that's but, great. So that would be, you know, I mean, that's, 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 that's a, I mean, uh, I would have liked to have met Jimi Hendrix. I would have liked to have met Prince. I would have liked to have met Amy Winehouse. These people aren't singers. They're not performers. They truly are artists. They're yes. artists like Picasso, like Andy Warhol, like Jackson Pollock. They're, they're the difference is someone who sings real good it's very entertaining and it's very nice to hear and they do a great job. An artist, you know who they are in the first three notes they sing. And that's not to say definitely Adele and definitely all of these wonderful people of today. But I'm also talking about Dr. John and Dylan and, and Louis Armstrong. These people were artists. And you, it was, no one did them but them. They were them. They couldn't right. help but be... It's Smokey Robinson, another one. He doesn't try to be Smokey Robinson. He just is. He can't do anything else but be that. That's right. And it's 
awesome. Anyone who has that, Aretha Franklin, I would have loved to have met. And for, you know, on another level, different level, but no one sounds like Frankie Valley. That's why he's Frankie Valley. That's Everybody right. Everybody sings. The whole world sings falsetto, and you still know when it's Frankie. That's right. You know, crew produced um, Lightning Strikes for Lou Christie, and it was a Four Seasons record. It's got foot stomps and hand claps the whole trip. And Lou does a beautiful job, and I know Lou, and he's a wonderful man. But I will tell you, there's no question that it's Lou and not Frankie, because Frankie sounds like Frankie. You know, I mean, every, right. everyone knows it. It's, it's, it's just it, it's just the way it is, and that's what makes an artist. And that's why some people who want to get into the business as good as they are, they get frustrated because people don't. Unfortunately, in the industry, the people that have the power don't know what they're looking for until they hear it. So you just hope it's you and go for what you believe in your heart. That's what you do. I just love the way you put things because of course you're being honest, but you're letting everyone out there really understand the truth behind it all. So I want to, I want to say thank you for that. Um, well, yes. it's my pleasure. And it's, I think it's important that people get a real picture of it as opposed to, I was singing in this club and a guy came in and it turns out he produced a record, and before you know it, I'm Lady Gaga. Let me tell you something, Lady Gaga had to appear on stage nude in Europe and then stay in London, even though she was from New York, just to get attention. And she was, and the same thing with Miley Cyrus, with that whole naked stuff on the wrecking ball. And they interviewed Elton John, what he thought about that, because everyone was putting it down and saying how vile it all was and terrible and all that. And Elton John is beautiful. Elton John said, I think it was on Ellen, and she's setting him up. What do you think of that, Elton? And he says, I think it's brilliant. She says, brilliant? What do you mean? Everyone's comment, condemning it. He said, she knows what she wants, and she got it, and she knew how to get it. I'm not saying everyone should want that. Right. But if you, but if you do, that's how you get it. Right. So just like his flamboyance in the day was blatantly you know, homosexual, that was taking a shot, too. No, no one takes the safe way and makes it, and no one takes the easy way and makes it. You know, it's just, it, I just don't know anybody who fell into a wonderful record deal. Even with me, even when I joined Frankie as one of the Four Seasons, I'm here to tell you we weren't making nothing, and we were playing nowhere. We played Rum Bottoms in Long Island. There was no work. Frankie was looked at as a has been act in '73. The last hit had been '69, so it was four years. And to his credit, he and he often told me that, Lee, if you get something that feels good and you're good at it, never stop. Stay with something. And I did. And so did he. And some of the guys in the band who went by the wayside, God bless them, whatever they chose to do, did not. And they were chasing something instead of believing in something. And all of that lore, all of that knowledge, and a guy like Dominical now comes from the street. There's nobody to teach you. And I was not a street guy. I was an upper middle class. You know, my dad had his own business and lived in the suburbs. And I got there, it was like culture shock. But what I learned <laughs> wasn't learnable anywhere else. It wasn't like, I mean, I always tell people, your name is Petito, right? Yes. And you got Don Paradiso, who's got to be Paradiso somewhere. But I always tell you guys, I'm more Italian as a Jew than you are as an Italian. That's great. <laughs> and there's one reason. The one reason is I've eaten food that was prepared for me by hand by Frankie Valley's mother. 
Now, if you can get more Italian than eat the tuna the Italian with the oil and vinegar on it, made by Frankie Valley's mother, that turns you into an Italian. Yeah. So there you have it. So that's beautiful. You just touched my heart with that. It made me think of my nonna from Italy. Oh, no, that was no. beautiful. Wow. Okay. You just touched my heart. <laughs> well, I, one, thing, one thing both of our ethnic backgrounds have in common is that the number one slot of priority is always family. Yes. Always. And so, you know, I fit, I fit right in. And even though, even though I was the first Jewish season. <laughs> That's great. But everybody... Musicians, you'll find for the most part, and, and it's certainly in my experience from my whole career, and I've heard some horror stories, but for the most part, if if you are a handsome guy and you show up with your saxophone and you stink, you're not in the band. And if you're a fat, homely Eskimo and your skin is green and you wear a pink tutu <laughs> and, and you play your ass off, you're in the band. That's right. <laughs> That was so funny. Oh my it's gosh! True. If you're if you're in it, if you're in it for the art of it, you're listening with your ears, not with your eyes. So, all right. I love everything you've just said, and you made me chuckle. So, I have a, a couple questions about. We're gonna go. We're gonna go fast forward here. So, you've you've created toys. Oddest thing, you know. <laughs> it's really interesting. I was told by someone, and, I, and I'm kind of a student of Eastern philosophy for the last 25 or six years, and not that I'm wearing a robe and walking, you know, whatever, but my, <laughs> belief, my, belief, my belief is Eastern philosophy, and they say the strongest, even if it's unbeknownst to you, the strongest power on the planet is the power of intention. And if you intend to do something and stay with it, it has to happen. So meanwhile... You don't even know it's happening. It's almost like, you know, you plant a seed, you water it, you assume it's going to grow. You don't start pulling it up to see if it's got roots. You just assume. Well, that's how life is. And so I'm doing commercials at my Alicia Carroll Music, where I work with Barry Manilow, and I started to catch, and I got some commercials to do. And I'm doing a thing, and I had a part, partner at the time in the, in the jingle company. And we're watching this commercial to put music to it, and I said to him, hey, man, same as Gary Redker, and I said, hey, man, do you think this is fun? He said, this thing stinks. I said, why don't we create something fun? So we decided we were going to do that. And we were thinking about it and had a chance to meet a man named Ron Dubrin. He came to the studio to do some music. Coincidentally, Ron Dubrin invented Tickle Me Elmo with some other partners. And he said to me personally, Lee, I think it's great that you want to invent toys but you really can't because they this, they that. And if you're doing music, you can't be an inventor and they won't do this and they won't do that. I I thank that guy to this day. Because you know what happens when someone tells people like you and me that we can't do something. That's right. You know what happens. So meanwhile, <laughs> we, come, we come up with an idea to put rock and roll into a Snoopy doll. And we fly to Canada where Irwin Toys is and we show it to them and they love it. We didn't know the toy business. It turns out Canada is not where you want to sell toys because they only sell a hundred thousand. like a big deal. But we didn't know. So we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we don't hear and we're calling and they're avoiding us. And finally, I say to my partner, I said, you know, let's just take it elsewhere. He says, well, what's the biggest toy? And I say, Tickle Me Elmo. And who has that? He sa I said, Fisher Price. He says, we're working for Fisher Price. Let's take it. 
So my wife and I make a prototype by taking an Elmo out of the store and a mechanism out of a shaky, shaky witch from, from Halloween. We stick it together and she makes a costume and we bring it in and we make a meeting with the guy who's the head of product development and he knew our name and he said, well, if you'll, will you, are you willing to register as inventors? And of course we were. Meanwhile, they took the thing and it sold 4 million pieces worldwide and was the second biggest selling toy in their history for Elmo. That's crazy. It's beyond. And I saw, I stayed with it and I invented a bunch of other stuff for Sesame Street and also... As a matter of fact, I had a toy out last year called Popcorn Poppin, which is <laughs> in Target and Toys R Us. And it's just stuff that occurs to me, and now that I have the connection, you know, I'll tell everybody who's listening, if you have aspirations, if I'm, well, do, I'm doing anything. But when the door opens, whatever else you're doing, stop and walk through the door. When I was in Manhattan School of Music, I was a composition major studying Prokofiev and Rachmaninoff and Beethoven and and, you know, honestly, I wasn't the right guy for that. I could do it, but I wasn't making any art of it because I didn't particularly love it. And then I got the offer to be with one of the, be one of the Four Seasons. And again, it was kind of a, a downtime for them. But I went to a teacher, my composition teacher, and she was like, you know, she looked like Mrs. Butterworth. She'd been there forever. And I said to her, her name was Miss Ulela. Ludmila Ulela. And I said, Miss Ulela, and I can see her in front of me now. <laughs> I, I said... I have to ask you a question. I got an offer to be one of the four seasons. Uh, what are you going to do, Lee? I said, well, they're going to have me play keyboards and write orchestrations and arrangements and sing and perform and travel, and they're going to pay me. And she looked at me, and she said, you know something? This is, a, this is a key turning point for me, a fork in the road. In 1972, this is. And she said to me, which is 50 freaking years ago, and she says to me, Lee, I don't know who the four seasons are. But if someone's willing to pay you to do arrangements and play and travel, you should take it because you can always come back to school. Unbelievable. This woman didn't know pop music from this. She was a stone classical composer. And the advice she gave me was selfless, correct, and a divine intervention for the, for the era that it was. Because everybody in the early 70s was always the same thing. Oh, you got to finish school. Well, you got to finish school. And I'm friendly with so many very famous musicians and very successful musicians. Those are the guys that dropped out. <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. I love your sense of humor. <laughs> That's great. So let's talk about the Hitmen. Oh, let's. Let's, please. Okay. In 2011, and I can't even believe I'm going back this far with this. I went to a recording session because Frankie Valley, who, as I say, I have a God almighty, a 50 year friendship with, I'm close with his whole family. Needless to say, Bobby and Tony, the daughter. And Beautiful. Oh, we, we go back way back. So meanwhile, I mean, you know, like my dad passed away and of course Frankie called and he knew my dad and it's, it's meaningful stuff in your, when you have that in your, in your history. But um, the Hitmen, what happened was people are always asking me when you're going to go perform, and now Jersey Boys is big, why don't you go do it, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? So I had heard that there were groups of guys who used to be the cast of Jersey Boys who went off on their own and they were all getting sued because their name was too close. To, they were using boys in their name 
and they were singing half of Frankie's catalog, and there were legal problems. So I went to the session for what was like a who's who of the recording industry, if I tell you who's on the session. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Charlie Colello, Bob Gordio, uh, Artie Shrek, Paul Schaefer, Will Lee. It was nuts. Everybody in the world was there. And uh, I, I, you know, I will tell you, I said to him, Frankie, people are asking me now with the success of Jersey Boys, do you mind if I go out and put something together and do a band that's, you know, basically you're going to play a lot of the music from you? And I said, I'm going to get Pulchy and Ciccone too. And we'll be three of the four seasons and we will call ourselves that. But what do you think? And he said to me very candidly, Lee, you know we have legal issues with the guys from the, uh, where they weren't calling themselves the Midtown Men at the time, they were calling themselves something. And um, he says, but you and the other guys really were biographically the Four Seasons, so go off and do whatever the heck you want. Okay. So we had the, we kissed the ring, and <laughs> we, got the, we got the permission, and me and Sacconi, rest in peace, and Paulchi got together in a rehearsal room with friends of ours, Larry Gates is one, Jimmy Ryan, who was one of the original critters with Don Sacconi and who was Carly Simon's musical director. And that was the band we got together and we started touring and it was pretty slow and it happened and it happened. And when Jersey Boys won the Emmy, won the uh, Tony rather, that year they had been made a million dollars and we were just, it was, we, we just couldn't believe it. Because we basically we were reliving our past and bringing it back to everybody, but authentically because we were there. I mean, we were really there. So time goes by and tastes in music are changing and people who were 70, who were maybe 25 or so in, in the 70s and are now getting into their 80s and going to less concerts so we shift gears, bring it up. Instead of doing 60s and early 70s, we start doing 70s and early 80s. Okay. And it was slow because people are like expecting to hear what they thought they were right. going to hear. But we're not making enough to stay in the industry that way because, frankly, there are so many bad Jersey Boy tributes that you can get for a few thousand dollars that sometimes promoters would rather save the money and just so it's not as good but it's the same songs you know whatever their reasoning is so we updated it and people with COVID happening and everything started to splinter off and then as you may know Jerry I've, I've got multiple sclerosis so I was traveling the last four years of the band with MS and it, it, it wasn't all that fun yeah. so what we've done is Steve Murphy who replaced Jerry Pulte on drums and he was with Alan Parsons and he's worked with Sting and he's worked with Three Dog Night. Anyway, he was our drummer and he sings like Steve Perry from Aeros, I mean from uh, Journey. It, okay. it's, it's bizarre how good he is. He put together a group of guys with the same kind of classic rock credits that I have and the other guys had pop credits. So these guys have been, have toured and performed with people from Wings and Sticks. And, you know, it just, just so many people with Cheap Trick is another one. That's cool. And they do, basically, from Layla with Derek and the Dominoes yeah. in 68, <laughs> up, right up to the police and Sting. And that's the show. And it's the same show, only up a decade. So that has caught. It's, it's actually started to catch. And as a result, 
last year we did like 30 dates and we're filling in 2023. And if people want to see an authentic classic rock show by guys that really played with people like, you know, uh, as I said before, or, or, you know, John Oates from Hall and Oates, and it's all that kind of thing, like the real guys, then you got to come and see the Hitmen as they are now. They're called the Hitmen Classic Rock Supergroup. And it would be just wonderful, those hearing, if you give them a shot, because they're unbelievable. The show is quite stunning. And I love the name. <laughs> well, of course I would. I'm Italian. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Listen, I love the name anyway. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll, go, you'll, you'll go as our, as, as our guest. Oh, my gosh. I would love to, and I would love to hug you one day. And well, if I go to a show, it hugs are on you. And I want to buy... My granddaughter is is six. She'll be six. I'm going to buy her popcorn popping. Okay, so um, I'm going to go. So it, they should have it. I'll even order it. And when oh, I do... Go online, go online to yep, Target.com. I will. There, and we have a Target here in my town if they don't have it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a picture of her holding it and send it to you. And I'm going to post it. I will love that, okay? So this is really cool. So we still have a little bit of time. I made a decision. What we're going to do is I've got a few of your songs. We're going to play them after our interview at the end. I'm going to give everyone a short little concert, okay? That's how we'll Super. do this. So. Great. I want you to be able to get out everything and anything else you want to tell them. And I want, I want you to talk about a couple of the songs that I will be playing. Bye Bye Baby. Tell me your thoughts on that song, what, you, you know, what it meant to you. Well, I'll tell you the truth. That's, that's, when Bye Bye Baby came out, I was 11. So it meant something to me in hearing it on the radio as a young boy and thinking the sound was cool and the harmonies. And, and Bob Gordio was ahead of his time because... When Bob was writing some of these songs, everyone else was doing basically doo-wop, and rock and roll was starting to come into the forefront, but the vocal groups were doing like Blue Moon, and it just stays like that. Gordio broke out of that, they did different harmony, and I recognized it right away, but my starkest realization about Bye Bye Baby came from an arrangement that Charlie Colello did for the live act. When I got there, this arrangement existed. And when I left, it was there still. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was there. And the, we used to call it the the, uh, the Sherry Medley or the Golden the golden Years of 62 and 63 Medley. And it was always last. And the reason was it was Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, and then Bye Bye Baby, but just from the chorus where it builds, Bye Bye the place would go ape yeah. for decades. For decades, there was no way to replace that medley. You couldn't do it once That's you right. did that. The show was over once you did that. You could not follow it with anything. So my 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 relationship with that song is that it was the biggest biggest round of applause, standing ovation I'd ever seen anywhere when I first was doing it with Frankie. 22,000 people at the garden stood on their feet for that medley. Amazing. So, okay. Oh, what a night. Talk about that. Oh, what a night was originally 1933. People have heard it's true. Claudio wrote it about prohibition. The track was cut. The band had a meeting. We told them we hated the lyric. Now we're telling a man who sold 80 million records that we don't like the lyrics. Um, <laughs> Lee from Glenrock doesn't like it, you know. So he had a hemorrhage. He was like losing his mind. And understandably so. He had entitled to have an ego for who he was. And the next day, to his credit, he showed up to a rehearsal. Completely new lyric. 
which was sung to the original track that was cut for the first lyric and became the biggest hit in Four Seasons history. That's amazing. Um, you know, all right, so, all right, before I talk about, I wanted to ask you a question, but before I do, tell me a little bit about Who Loves You, what that song means to you first. Honestly, when I did Who Loves You with Bobby, I, I showed up to his house, and we went to the basement, all of us, and he played it for us. And I was, you know, look, I was, I don't know, I, I guess that I was musically snobby because of my jazz and classical background, but he played it, and to me, it was like, oh, good, this is a disco version of Sherry. Because if you sing Sherry against Who Loves You, it's the same chords. Okay. And so I was kind of like disillusioned a little bit. Then he started to play it. Then he started to sing it. It started to sound like a song. Then he handed out the harmonies for the guys to sing. And I'm saying, gee, this is cool. And just a little aside, we got to the bridge and nobody could sing it because the key he put it in was prohibitive. Okay. So they all so they all went upstairs. And I was able to, you know, while I stayed downstairs playing the thing because I was just so freaking elated to be doing what I was doing. It was uh, surreal, you know. I'm going to make a record. A real record with real people. Guys that don't have to ask. You know, so anyway, they went upstairs, everybody had coffee, and I figured it out. And I moved the key down in the middle by transposing. Oh, I won't bore you with the technical details. So Gordio comes down, and he looks at me, and I say, look, I think I figured it out. And I play it, and I go to the middle part, and it's in the lower key now, and it comes back in and modulates back into itself. And he looks at me, and this is Gordio. He's, I'm thinking he's going to say, holy shit, Lee. <laughs> this is what he said. This is a quote. Well, I don't know what you did, but it works now. Anyway. That's <laughs> great. Nothing out of it. Nothing. Not even a ripple in his world. That's beautiful. And I will say publicly on the air with you that the entire middle part, that, was completely created on the spot at a rehearsal by Don Ciccone solo. Period. That's cool. That's the truth. That's cool. There. Okay, I, I love there. that. Thanks for sharing that. These are yeah. the things that we want to hear. Yeah, well, like I say, the, the story of the Hitman and my story is that we yes. were there. We it's were amazing. There. So, okay, so what I want to say about, like, Oh, What a Night and Bye Bye Baby you know, you know, I mean, think about it, the Four Seasons, right? Okay, Frankie Valli, first of all, your songs will live forever. You know, there's only, there's not many artists out there. I mean, Elvis is one, of course, you know, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. I mean, there's not many artists out there that could say their songs were put out 50 years ago and little kids are singing them. Okay? I, yeah, I have seven-year-old grand twins. Okay. They are well-versed. I mean, it's amazing. I mean... This this music will live forever. And and again, Frankie Valley, I love you. Listen, if you would ever honor me with with an interview, I would flip. Okay, I wanted to just say that because you're Frankie Valley. And you know what? That Sherry chick, who the heck is she? Because you know what? It should be Jerry, baby. That's right. Okay. When Michael D. Moore sings it from the Capris, he's the new lead singer of the Capris. Michael D. Moore sings Jerry Baby for me. How about that? <laughs> well, you, you, you got, you, that, that's better than a shout-out. Okay, listen, I want to know who that Sherry chick is anyway, baby. But you know, you know, Well, that's another little tidbit that people yeah. need to hear. Yes. Dawn, Sherry, yeah. Ronnie, yeah. Mar Marlena, 
There's nobody named that. Oh, I thought maybe they were, you know, ex-girlfriends no, or loves. These are professional songwriters. Okay. They wake up, they wake up in the morning. I'm, I'm, I was friendly for many. I'm still friendly with Larry Brown, who wrote Tire Yellow Ribbon and Sweet Gypsy Rose. He wrote, he wrote Come On, Marion. He wrote Sock It To Me For Me Tried. Anyway, and he says it best. He's 82 now. God love him. I've known him my whole life. And he says it best. He says, Lee, our job as creative people is to take nothing and turn it into something that the whole world will buy. And that's what that's what a professional does. So if you're walking in the field waiting for the inspiration to meet a girl named Marianne to write a song, good luck. <laughs> I you love it. Saying? Now that's not to say that, like for instance, songs like you know Paul McCartney's Blackbird and things like that. These had real people inspiration, and that's wonderful. But if you don't have that, and you're a professional songwriter, and you don't write a song then you're not a professional songwriter. So, you know, you go in there and you give it your best shot. And sometimes the thing that you hate the most is the one that hits and the thing that you like the most doesn't go. And But why wasn't Fallen Angel the biggest song of the year? Okay. Now, I didn't write it. I arranged it. Okay. But So I don't have any money to make. As an arranger, you get paid flat and there's no royalty for me. Why wasn't that? It's a magnificent song. Okay. It's a mag and a magnificent record. And the reason is because it didn't. Either either there were other priorities at the record company, didn't have the promotion money, something else was monopolizing the top ten. There's a zil you know, none of it makes anybody happy, but it happens. And and so you keep going. You keep that's going. It. And that's life, isn't it? That's and right. What's 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 the alternative? Not keep going? That's right. And then on top of it all, another choice. Do you want to keep going while you're miserable? Or do you want to decide not to be miserable and keep going, hopefully? Right. It's a cho choice. Don't let, don't let life tell you what it's going to do. You tell life what it's going to do. You know, I wrote a book, um, and I just want to share that. Um, I'm not an addict. I'm just an ass. I'd rather be a smart ass than a dumb ass. Because... You know, 31 years ago, Lee, I was a dumbass, but now through the grace of God, 31 years later, I can honestly say I'm a smartass. And I wrote a poem 